Happy Super Bowl Sunday, happy Valentine's week, and uh, hello and welcome. My, my name is Dan, in case we haven't had a chance to meet, and I'm really excited to uh, be able to share the word with you today. We have a really, really cool, rich, beautiful passage in front of us, and, and I'm really pumped to share that with you. I think a question that will help us to get into it a little bit is this, is what do you do, what do you typically do when you feel absolutely overwhelmed, maxed out? What, what do you look for help when you're stuck, when you're hopeless? We know, you know what I'm going to say. We know that the answer to that is supposed to be Jesus, right? But I hope our text today, the Gospel of Mark, shows us how and why it's Jesus so we can understand that a little bit better. I think our text today is also going to show us the common places we tend to look for help before we get to Jesus. Where do we reach What's that grab bar we're looking for when we're struggling? Do we try to prop ourselves up on our sense of competence or conventional wisdom? Do we rely on that to keep us afloat when we feel like we're drowning? Do we expect our status or our strength to kind of save us and carry us through when we're going through struggles and loss? Sometimes, you know, those, our own abilities and, and those, those things can help us get through difficult moments in life can push us where we need to go often, but also often in our greatest moments of desperation, they, they don't help. So what do, we, what do we do then? You know, maybe emotionally or mentally, you're just you're sinking right now. You're stressed, not sure how to keep everything going, and you'd, you'd like to think your experience, your, your strong career can kind of keep you above water, but it's just, it doesn't feel like it is. Maybe you're sensing spiritual attack, you're not feeling like yourself, something's off, bad things just keep happening to your family. I can't escape it, I can't make it stop. None of my skills are helping with that, what do I do? In those seasons when you're under just immense weight of shame, you feel outcast, you feel embarrassed, different, I don't fit, feel rejected. I've read the books, articles, I've gone to workshops, I've even gone through counseling for this, and I just, I don't feel wanted or loved no matter what. Maybe you've gone through seasons like that. Or maybe somebody you love dearly is, is ill and you think, Lord, what, why is this happening? Look at all that I've done for you. Come on. I'm a pretty good person. Why would you let this happen? And your sense of goodness or what you've done for the Lord doesn't seem to be helping that moment of struggle and suffering. It's really understandable that we would all Expect these efforts, these attempts to provide some kind of relief in our really difficult situations. And sometimes they do. But I imagine, I know, that many of us have had moments where they don't and we're left feeling you know, kind of desperate and not sure what to do. I think today's text, in this word, in this Gospel of Mark, the Lord wants you to see, to hear really clearly that when nothing else seems to help, Jesus can. Nothing else is working. Nothing else is the solution. Jesus can bring one. We have been working through the Gospel of Mark together, reading it every day throughout the week uh, in our devotional booklets and praying through it and reflecting on it, taking notes and all of that. And then when we come together to study it here in this corporate context, gathered on weekend weekend services, uh, I hope that these messages are helping make sense of that other stuff that we've been reading throughout the week. And I hope that our time together today, our, our messages on the weekends, equip us for really good, observant, fresh, sharp Bible reading the other six days of the week. 
Um, one habit that I think can really help us with that sharp, focused, observant reading is looking at the context, revisiting the, the passage that came right before whatever you're reading now. You know what I mean? That allows us to see how everything's connected. It allows us trace the author's argument. It uh, shows us ideas and themes and pictures in one passage, how they're recurring and echoing for really good reason later in, an, in another text. It helps us to zoom out from the pixels and see the greater, clearer picture. And today's text is a really good opportunity to practice that habit. So let's do that. What I mean by that is this, that last week we saw four soils, right? Remember that? We saw four soils that show different reactions to the good news of Jesus, to the coming of the kingdom and its announcement and its arrival. And then we saw four parables, four soils, four parables that explain how the kingdom is going to be unfolded on earth, how it will arrive, how it works. And now, how many miracles do you think we have today? We got another four. That's on purpose. I think there's a lot of significance to that. What does that add up to? Twelve. I'm not going to go into super detail on that, but I do think it's important. So there's some extra notes in this week's sermon discussion questions. We'll just leave it there if you want to do some further study on that. Uh, but I point that out because we're going to hear that number 12 a couple times in today's text. We're going to hear it again next week in the Feeding the 5,000. Um, and so it, it does matter. <clears throat> and in, our la- in the last portion of this 12 things, our, our four miracles uh, today, um, we're giving these rich, beautiful, awe-inspiring enormous miracles, these pictures of Jesus' power, but also very tender, personal, compassionate, caring moments of touch between Jesus and people who are suffering. It's really beautiful. And all of this shows us Jesus' divine dominion, meaning he is God, and he's in charge of multiple spaces and situations. And so, all that to say, these four miracles we're looking at today are like proofs, evidence for these uh, these. these parables about the coming of the kingdom and say this king is real. He is actually in charge. And so this is all demonstrating to us that that king, that his actual real kingdom are coming in to a dark, demon-infested, death and disease-ridden world to bring hope and help in the midst of our despair. And we're gonna see that today through four miracles, through a storm, through demons, through a bleeding woman and a little girl facing death. We have 50 verses in front of us today, and I love all of them, and I feel super compelled to get through all of it, but I know that's not possible in, our, in the time we have allotted, so let's try another structure, another approach, okay? Let's look for four things in each of these four stories. First, let's look for the domain or the space What's the territory that Jesus is entering into and doing his work in? What domain is Jesus going to show his dominance in? Okay, that's the first thing we want to look for, domain. Second, let's look for the problem that needs to be dealt with, the obstacle that needs to be overcome. Third, let's take a look at the sources of help that we would normally think should work, right? Our strength, our competence, our money, medicine, stuff like that. Let's look for the things that we, we would assume will get us out of the problem and predicament, but They don't always work. And then fourth, let's look at how Jesus actually helps. The solution that he brings that really truly works when nothing else does. Domain, problem, help, and solution. Those are the four features we're going to look for in these four stories. Hope that gives us some uh, some structure. I'm really hopeful that the Lord will use at least one of these four stories 
these amazing scenes to speak into your situation right now, something that you're going through so that you can see in a really fresh, encouraging, strengthening way that King Jesus can enter into the problems and the pains uh, to bring meaningful help, not just back then, but today, now, in your life. That's real. But even if these stories don't quite line up with the situation you're going through right now, I'm very confident that the Lord is going to show us at least four different ways that Jesus is so in charge, that he's so powerful and good and loving and caring, that he's incredibly personal, that he's incorruptible, and that he can step onto any scene, any turf, and absolutely dominate to deliver his people. That's the Jesus we worship and follow, and so let's look to him in these four passages, these miracle stories today, to see how he can help when nothing else does. Let's go ahead and turn to Mark 4. If you're already there, let's go to verse 35. Let me set up the storm. Evening, dark, has just set in. Jesus just finished teaching about soil, land, farming, right? Remember those soil parables? What's the seed stuff, mustard plants? He just finished teaching on that. And now the story shifts to water from land to sea, right? That's a comfortable transition for many of these disciples who grew up and made their living fishing on this very lake. They knew their way around. This is just another day at the office for their, these guys. So they get into a boat really confident, comfortable with their ability to, to navigate this water that they're heading out onto. And so Jesus and his disciples pull away from the crowd that he was just speaking to, tired from a long day of ministry, teaching, hop into this boat, and they head out on the sea or the lake of Galilee. Let's pick up at verse 37. <clears throat> They're on the Sea of Galilee, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he, Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? And he awoke, and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Okay, what's the domain here? That's the first thing we want to look for. We're working with water, wind, and storm. That's what Jesus has just gotten into. This is creation. This is the forces of nature. That's the domain Jesus is dealing with. How about the problem? Well, the stormy sea would symbolize chaos and death and fear. Something uncontrollable, very scary to humans. I can't stop these waves, right? I don't, I don't even know what monsters and crazy darkness is under my feet right now. The sea, especially a stormy sea, would, would symbolize all that. We can't tame those things. Any of you who, who surf know that. You respect the power of the ocean. That's a scary thing. And the disciples understood that because they say, we, we are perishing. We're, we're pretty sure we're going to die right now. Because what they thought would help wasn't working. What was that thing that they thought would help? I think it's their own competence as sailors, their expertise as fishermen. That's not holding the, back the waves from overtaking and filling the boat at all. Their hardest rowing, their, their years of experience on this lake were doing nothing to stop them from sinking. Have you ever been there? Maybe you're that employee who just does everything right, nothing wrong, but the boss just keeps piling on with no promotion, no raise, no acknowledgement or thanks. You can't get anywhere in the company. You can't earn the income you need. Just stuck. 
Maybe you make all the meals, you drive to all the events, you keep the house clean, you run all the errands, even miraculously put in work hours on top of all that somehow. You check all the boxes for what a perfect super mom should be. And the stress of it all is just starting to break you. I don't know how I can do this another day. Exhausted. Drowning. Maybe you're the student who got all perfect grades. You took all the hardest classes. You led all the clubs at your school. You stood out on your basketball team. You did it all right. Perfect. Ideal student. And one day you get that letter in the mail from that college you want so bad. This is, the, this is the big one. You open up that letter. Oh, sink. My competence should be helping. But it's not. Jesus, don't you care? He does. This is the solution. Jesus gets up from sleep and he scolds the storm like he knows it. Like it's the neighborhood bully down the street. He says, silence, be still. This is a callback, very cool, to Psalm 107, where God is the one who stills the storm and quiets the waves. Jesus knows that, he knows his Bible, and he's pulling from that in this moment to tell his disciples, I am he, capital H, who made the sea and is sovereign over all of it. I want you to know that. I want you to feel that as you're lifted up above the waves. As the storm is calmed, I am God. We gotta remember that too. His divine identity and his divine ability when we are in the middle of our storms. When we're sinking, let's not forget that the son of God rose to rebuke death. To silence the boast of sin and this watery grave to save his disciples, yeah? So we can be incredibly confident that yes, he does care. He does have the ability to command and calm the elements around us that are totally out of our control, that our competence is not helping us with. Not only that, but when we have those moments where we feel like he's sleeping in the boat, everything's crazy around us, when we didn't get into the school that we wanted, when the parenting pressure just keeps mounting and piling, when our career feels dead in the water. Jesus, don't you care? Yes, he does. Maybe he wants to quiet the storm in here and say, it's okay, I'm with you. I'm gonna get you through it that way. He can do both. Competence is a great thing. Career, college, very important parts of our life. No knock. But sometimes they're not the solution. Sometimes they don't help everything. And so where they fail to carry us through the storm, know that Jesus will not fail. Know that he cares. Know that he's in control. And we can trust that he has the power to calm both our circumstances and our souls. So Jesus and his disciples, they, they make it to the other side and they arrive at a place called Garasa. This is a city that represents a whole territory, a whole region, Gentile area, non-Jewish region. And finally they're safe. The storm's over. They've, they're back on ground and nothing else bad is going to happen. Everything's fine except right off the nose of their boat stands this ominous silhouette of a, of a man beast roaming the shore in the dark of the night, at least what's left of this poor man who's been taken over by demons. 
banished to the cemetery to walk the realm of the dead. Being enslaved as Satan's security guard, he comes to Jesus and his crew to defend what he thinks is his territory, his domain. In Mark 5, verse 3, it says, no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with, chain, with sh- uh, shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when, Jesus saw, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. This is fight language. There's a threat tone in there in what he's saying. Don't you dare touch me. Don't torment me. Don't torment me. You don't have the right to cry about that when you have been torturing this poor man. Destroying a human child of God, reducing him to a wild beast, stealing his identity, subjecting him to chains like a dog on a leash, taking over his body, causing him to cut himself, robbing him of relationship. He's been sent away. Desocializing him, kicking him out of community so that the townspeople say, just go away. We don't want to deal with you. These evil spirits have done that. They are destroying him and trying to strip him of the image of God. Jesus sees that and says, no more. Today, demons, you are done. Get out. So Jesus is in Gentile terrain, showing his supremacy over the forces of evil in the spiritual realm who have caused this man to be so deeply tormented inside and outside. And the locals have sought help, the third part, have sought help with this problem in their own ideas of strength and separation. Let's put our best chains, our strongest medals on, and maybe that'll solve it. That'll keep it all together. Nope. Let's just send them away. Get them out of here. Strength, separation. That's not helping, though. So, in complete control, Jesus asks this demon his name, to which they answer legion, for we are many. Remember, Mark is writing with Roman sensitivities, and so his Roman audience would totally have understood what that picture is illustrating there. Legion uh, was the largest military unit of a Roman army. It's five to 6,000 soldiers. And so this is a multitude of satanic fighters standing against Jesus, pictured by himself on the shore, a fight no one has been able to win so far through strength or through separation. And we're meant to see that this is just absolutely overwhelming opposition. Nobody can handle this. But Jesus is actually the one who's got the demons shook on their heels, trembling, afraid, begging, please don't send us away from this area. Instead, how about you send us to this herd of pigs over here? That's strange. So Jesus gives permission okay, you can go to the pigs. And the demons leave the man and enter into the animals and 2,000 pigs rush down a hill chaotically and jump into the sea and drown to their death. That's a little bit of an uncomfortable picture. Why so much animal death here? Why does that have to happen? It's an uncomfortable scene to us modern readers, maybe vegans, you know, 
people with pets. Uh, I had a, a neighbor when I was a little kid who had a really cute little pot belly pig that would like zip around the yard. It was an awesome little, little pet. So this feels weird. What do the pigs do? You know, let's talk about that. Three things. <clears throat> First, we should know that Jesus does not hate animals. Okay. He created them. He is not the one who caused their death and destruction, their drowning. The demons did all of that. Jesus gave permission. The demons did it. Jesus did no harm. He's only bringing solution and freedom and restoration to this man by sending the demons out. That's one thing we should keep in mind. Second, Jesus is in a Gentile territory, which is an area where they thought it'd be, it's fine to eat pigs. It's fine to raise pigs. No big deal, right? It's normal. But when a Jew, which is what Jesus and the disciples were, when they see pigs, they think, unclean, unclean, keep that away. That's an animal that wouldn't be appropriate to eat. Religiously, it's, it's unacceptable, according to Leviticus 11. And so the Jewish reader would feel about pigs, maybe the way we feel about cockroaches or rats, something like that, like kind of a pest that we wouldn't mind too much if it went away. You know what I'm saying? Third, have you heard of Antiochus Epiphanes? This is probably the most important of the three points. Antiochus Epiphanes shows up in the books of Maccabees. Those are uh, not included in our Protestant Bible, <clears throat> but they're important historical documents, and they help us with some New Testament background that we do need to know about, and so they're very useful. Uh, they, sh they show up historically between the Old and New Testaments, and we're told there that Antiochus, this Seleucid sub-Greek pagan ruler, takes over God's temple in Jerusalem. And then in it, he forces the Jews at the threat of death to sacrifice pigs, an animal that he knows they, they, don't, think is they don't think is clean. He forces them to sacrifice pigs, not to God, but to Zeus, a false god. And then to eat pork with a gun pointed at their head. It's terrible. This is the most extreme abomination in like three different ways that could happen to Jewish people. And so this is an event that solidified pigs as the icon of idolatry, of anti-Judaism. And it represented this whole system, a whole season of evil and oppression. Make sense? And so all that to say, while we today, we like Piglet, we like Pumbaa, we like Porky, these cute cartoon pigs that are friendly, that's fine. We got to know the original audience is not thinking like that. They are seeing unclean spirits going to unclean animals symbolizing pagan sacrifice, a whole system of worship directed towards false gods, which are demons plunging into the water that Jesus just showed his dominance over to their death. So they're feeling like this is a huge win for Jesus and his kingdom coming into this moment of darkness. It's a beautiful time of liberation, a new season of wholeness for this tormented man as well. So that is what Mark is intending to portray. Now, Jesus doesn't just stop there at sending demons out of this man, but he also sends the man himself on a mission. This new disciple, now freed, made whole, is sitting at the feet of Jesus, calm, clothed, collected. The image of God, his identity has been restored, and he understands what Jesus has done for him. And he says, I'm your guy. I'll do anything. Just teach me. Tell me. I'm, I'm yours. And this is what we should all do in response 
to realizing what Jesus has done for us, when we understand that Jesus has set us free, has restored us, we sit at his feet as his disciples say, teach us, Jesus, I want to be like you. And Jesus sends him with a new identity and a new mission. He says in verse 19, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. Go back into relationship, into the community you were kicked out of. Be with them and tell them how he has had mercy on you. You were possessed, now you're a preacher. He sends this once isolated man back to be with people to proclaim the power of God that he's just experienced, the strength that King Jesus has demonstrated over the spiritual realm and the forces of evil. And I hope this picture sticks with us especially in those moments, in those relationships where you feel like, ah, oh, man, if this person would just go away, my life would be so much easier, cleaner, simpler. I don't want to associate with that crowd. I feel like that's going to hurt my career. It could damage my reputation. You know, waste my time. Just get out. And maybe if we could just create some distance, take a break, get away from each other, for a little bit, that, that might fix what's broken in our relationship. You know, there are certainly people, exes or abusive relationships that you, you never need to go back to. You do need to block that, okay? That's not what I'm talking about. We're talking about people who Jesus has placed in your sphere who desperately need his care, his freedom, his renewal. People who maybe don't, don't always make sense to us it seems like there's something dark going on in their life or spiritually something is just a little bit off. Literally, maybe they're being attacked by the enemy. And so even though that can seem scary and chaotic to us, let's not be so quick to kick them out. But let's question our own discomfort right there. Let's pause, let's reconsider that impulse to separate, knowing that Jesus has already shown he's dominant over this. And so instead of running away in fear, we can pray for that person and ask the Lord, do you want me to move back toward them? Because people dealing with demonic oppression, something dark in their lives, they need the power of Jesus to send it away. And so let's go as followers of Jesus, knowing that he's with us, having a faith in Christ that's stronger than fear of the enemy, and be open to the possibility that maybe the Lord is sending you into that situation. Or... Maybe like the locals, you trust in the strength of chains to restrain demons. Maybe we think like them that if, if I could just be more emotionally resilient, if I could get physically stronger, more, more capable, faster, bigger, I'd feel more secure and I could, I could handle anything. Or maybe we find strength and security in a certain political party or a brand or a group of people, an in-crowd I want to associate with, that makes me feel secure. Maybe we get our sense of stability and protection and safety from the locks on our door, the ring camera on the front of our house, masks and Lysol wipes. Not knocking that, those have great practical value, they're fine. <clears throat> but when spiritual attack, oppression hits, none of that matters, does it? That's not helping except for the sending strength of Jesus. You know, I know that when I have sensed a dark 
spiritual presence. I bring nothing to the table. Any physical ability that I have is completely useless. When you're dealing with that realm, that situation, I can't stop it. I can't separate from it on my own. I have got to pray really hard to Jesus. And this is what that sounds like. King Jesus, this is your space. This is your house. You rule and you reign. I know that you are more powerful than the powers of the enemy. And so, Lord, would you send them away? Would you please protect me, the people around me? Would you fight for us? Because I know there's nothing greater, nothing stronger than you. And I know you've already won. You are victorious, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We've got to pray stuff like that because the enemy wants us to value instead the idea of separation or our own strength because he knows that doesn't work. So let's try something that does when we sense that he is at work. Let's just go back to Jesus and prayerfully depend on his power to send demons back where they belong, but also his power to send us into situations on his mission as restored creations and as freed followers of Christ. Verse 21. We'll meet a guy named Jairus. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, so he's going back into Jewish territory now, leaving this Gentile domain, he's going back, kind of his hometown region, back to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, another clue that we're in Jewish area, Jairus by name, And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter, the the Greek could be rendered maybe my sweet baby girl, this this my my precious angel, it's a very tender phrase, is at the point of death. Come lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he, Jesus, went with Jairus. And on the way to helping Jairus and his daughter, a crowd surrounds Jesus, and Jesus feels something, something different. Not a hand on his shoulder, not an elbow to the ribs, not toes getting stepped on by a sandal, but he feels power come out of him. And he stops and he turns, and he says, who touched my garment? Jesus is not calling anybody out here. He's not scolding. He's not condemning. He knows exactly what he's doing. The disciples say, why would you ask that, dude? Like, everyone is touching you. What are you talking about? Jesus has somebody in mind. He's calling to the center of the scene this, this woman in faith. He knows what he's about to do. And he's speaking to this woman, terrified and humbled on her face. And she approaches Jesus and she ad- admits that, yeah, it was me. And she shares her whole story. It's a big deal for her because she knows she's not supposed to touch anybody. With her ailment that she's dealing with, she knows she's not supposed to be in a crowd. She knows nobody, nobody would want to bump into me or touch me either. Here's why. Look at verse 25. It says, She was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I'll be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. And he said to her, Daughter, family, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Be healed of your disease. As a Jewish woman who would want to live according to the personal hygiene and ceremonial cleanliness laws of Leviticus 15, this illness would have made her public life 
nearly impossible. She wasn't supposed to be around people. She definitely wasn't supposed to touch a highly regarded holy man like Jesus. It's very, very unlikely she would have ever been married, couldn't have children, very difficult to earn income and get a job with this condition. She couldn't go into the synagogue for worship. People would have treated her like trash. And like the demon-possessed man, she would have just been sent away to quarantine. So she's crushed. She's hopelessly alone, in pain, exhausted, marginalized, impoverished, and ashamed. She's impoverished because she has emptied her entire bank account to pursue every single medical remedy and angle that was available to her. She'd given her money to as many doctors as she could, which is very understandable. Many of us would do that as well. We've all seen money and medicine as really helpful solutions, really useful. And that's, that's not crazy to think that. And the more money you have, the more options and access to medical care you can usually get, the higher quality of care you, sh- you have access to, the more medicine you can pay for, and even you speed up shipping, you can get it faster. Money controls all of that. When I was in college up in San Luis Obispo, um, I was working on a remodel project, and uh, it was with my roommates. And we were converting the garage, and so I had my head in this cabinet, and I was, I don't know what I was thinking. There was a screw in the wall, and I was thinking, I, I don't want to go, I don't need a, a drill to get this out. I'll just use the hammer. So I put the hammer on there and pop it, and bam, just smack my eyebrow, split it open. I don't know if you can see the scar still, but it's the little one there. I didn't have health insurance at the time. I wasn't making a ton of money as a college student, you know. And I didn't like going to the doctor. I was kind of ashamed to ask for help. And I tend to prefer to just do things on my own. And so I'm like holding the paper towel thing here. And for a while, my roommates were like, dude, this thing's not stopping. You should probably go in, you know? Okay, fine. So I go to the urgent care, not too far from my house. And it's in like this Best Buy Ralph's, you know, strip mall type of situation. So I pull in this area and, and uh, strange, I, I drive by one of the elders of our church. I knew him, he knew me. I had his kids in our junior high group and our families actually go way back. So I know this guy, but I've never seen him in my neighborhood. He lived 25, 30 minutes away. He's never up there. Our church was at 15 minutes away. And, and so it was very unusual to see him in this, this parking lot. <clears throat> he happened to randomly be there for a, a nearby medical conference. And we, we see each other, we pass. You can tell that I'm holding my eyebrow. He's like, dude, let me look at that. So he checks out my eyebrow, immediately says, let me take you back to my, my office and, and uh, get you taken care of. So we drive back down to Pismo Beach where his doctor's office still is. Um, and he stitched me up for free. It was absolutely incredible. Divine appointment. It just still makes me smile. really moving to me. Um, I was concerned. I was stressed in that situation. The Lord provided healing through his servant, Dr. Sandberg, when I didn't have a ton of money, when I didn't have a lot of hope or options in professional medicine, I suffered for, you know, 12 minutes with no real shame or embarrassment other than I felt ridiculous for hitting myself in the face. But this poor woman dealt with just agonizing humiliation and shame, horrible pain, feeling dirty and rejected and cast aside. Yet she reaches out through all of that in faith and in hope and a very appropriate desperation and touches Jesus and walks awake, cared for and clean. 
beautiful. She comes to Jesus having already spent every cent on medical remedies that didn't hurt, didn't help, they only hurt. And she leaves healed for free. She crawls to Christ bleeding out and dying. And get this, she is cured by the one who would later go bleed and die for her. An incredible glimpse of the gospel here where Jesus welcomes an unclean touch. Where he takes our shame, unafraid of our disease and our disorder, our unrighteousness, and he says, that's what I'm here for. Bring it all. And in return, he graciously, generously, lovingly gives healing for free. This is what he's done for all of us, friends. This is what he offers to anyone who would believe him and accept it in faith. And right as he is speaking to this woman, healing her in in public, in this big crowd, blessing her and sending her dignified in peace, somebody from Jairus' house steps into the scene and says words that nobody would want to hear. A sentence that would just drop me to the ground in horror and anger and unrestrained sadness. You know, Friday morning, we got some news like this. We heard um, that our, our dear sister, uh, Michi Yano, had, had gone to be with the Lord. We just absolutely treasured her. She's been such an integral part of SBCC family for so long. She worked with us in the office and was just such a warm, loving, caring, hospitable presence. Just sweet, funny. She's an awesome lady. And cancer um, took over her body very quickly over the past few months. When that text hit on Friday, I sat at my desk and cried. I thought, man, Michi, that's sad. But the Lord really quickly reminded me and all of our staff that, no, no, Michi is safe. She's better. She's free. She's not suffering anymore. She is safe and restored and free in the arms of Jesus. And so we don't have to despair. We don't have to fear we can continue to believe in Jesus who, who loves her and who has welcomed her home. And, and that same voice that spoke to me said the same message to this father Jairus when he heard that his daughter had died. And Jesus said this in verse 36 to the ruler of the synagogue. He said, don't fear, only believe. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion. People weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child's not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him. And he put them all outside. The Greek's a more intense word. He kicked them out. He cast them away. And he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went into where the child was. This is really sweet. Taking her by the hand, he said to her in Aramaic, her, her tongue, Talitha Kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And so here is Jesus now working very gently, very lovingly, tenderly in this private, quiet domain. Not in this crowd outside in public where there's this mix of people who do and don't have faith in him. And Jesus doesn't need to try really hard to win all of them over, all these people who are just laughing at him. 
disbelieving. He just says, okay, go. You don't get to see this incredible thing that I'm about to do, and that's fine. And so now we're in the synagogue ruler's house. That's what the text calls him, which is pulling back his name and pushing forward his role, right? Synagogue ruler means this is a man of authority, of position. He's a well-respected guy. Probably great religious maturity, somebody that people looked up to. Yet, none of that helped this little girl avoid death, did it? It's tempting for us to think that social power is the key, that achieving a certain status or even doing a lot of church activities, having all the right devotional habits in order, that that's the thing that's going to fix our problems. Maybe attaining some kind of prominence is going to be the thing that heals my childhood wounds. Maybe if I can feel more important than other people at work, that might eclipse the dead dysfunctional patterns that exist with my family at home. Maybe if I do enough good things for people, if I give enough money, that's going to give me a sense of spiritual vitality, kind of bring me back up. But friends, none of, none of those places we seek help actually work there. They need resurrection power of Jesus. And so, in those moments where we realize our great need, let's set aside the status like Jairus did. Let's see, that's not helping. I need Jesus so badly right now. Let's fall at his feet, admit there is nothing that I can do. There's no amount of strength None of my competence, none of my money, my prominence is going to raise what's dead. And instead, let's trust Jesus to lay his mighty hands upon the broken, overwhelming, devastating, crushing parts of our life. Let's invite the touch of Jesus in those places where we feel afraid and ashamed, where we're hopeless and nothing is helping. Let's invite him to bring calm to the chaos. Let's allow him to sustain us through the storm in whatever way he sees fit. Let's ask him to use his strength when we're facing spiritual oppression. Ask for his healing in our sickness and his resurrection in our deadness. And let's let him send us in mission to announce the great things that the Lord has done. Amen? Amen. One of the things that I love about these four pictures, these four stories, these miracles, these displays of Jesus' dominance, is that in all of them, he is stepping into death on our behalf, isn't he? This horrifying storm that nobody can control, that can kill. Jesus says, I got it. The domain of the dead, the cemetery where the the demon-possessed man was roaming and ruling. Jesus steps into that. I got it. This woman who is losing her life, bleeding out, heading downhill and ready to die. Jesus says, I got it. This little girl who has already died, he steps into that house. He says, I got it. Jesus steps into death courageously, powerfully on our behalf. 
Not just then, but now through his amazing work at the cross so that we could have life. He shed his blood so that we could have forgiveness, so that our uncleanliness, our sin, our guilt, our shame could be washed away, so that we could be restored and made new, brought back into the presence of God, into community with the Trinity, Father, Spirit, and Son, into relationship with his people. That happens because Jesus stepped into death.